How are we doing, 9 o'clock? You waking up? Oh, you guys are awesome. You must have crushed Starbucks this morning. It's good to be with you. Hey, welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. If you're joining us for the very first time, I want to give you a special welcome. My name is Dre. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and I hope that you all had a very special Back to the Future Day this past week because it's a very important day near and dear to my heart. As Patrick mentioned earlier, you got a program on your way in. If you would open that program up, there's a message note sheet inside. If you would pull that out, that's going to be a great tool to help you follow along in this time of teaching, um, to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is asking you to remember, or to just be able to draw a picture if you feel so inclined. So you've got the space there. I'm going to pray, and we're going to get started. Father, thank you for who you are. Father, as we start this morning, as we prepare to open up your word, I just pray for each and every one of us in here, Lord, just a sense of peace. Father, I don't know what everybody's weeks have been like. I don't know what their last 24 hours have been like. But I just know that you're just stirring to say, be still, listen to my words, and remember that the Holy Spirit is with you. And so I pray that message over us now as we open up your word, as we continue to be coached by these apostles in the beginning of your movement as we continue to be more filled up to go out into our local families, our communities, our places of business, and continue to be a sent people. Father, thank you that you don't send us alone. Thank you that you go with us everywhere we go. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Well, if you're brand new, let me bring you up to speed on the series we've been in. For the last several weeks, we've been in a series, you see it up on the screen, it's called Sent Life on Mission. And what this series has been is this series has been a study in one of the longest books of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, the book of Acts or Acts of the Apostle. Now, the author of Acts is a man named Luke, and we know a few things about Luke. We know that he's an educated man. He's a doctor by trade. We know that he's a writer. We know that he's a Gentile, meaning that he's not a Jewish man. We know that he's a Christ follower, and we know that he is a close personal friend of the Apostle Paul, author of a majority of the New Testament himself. And so what Luke is doing over two volumes is he's writing to a gentleman named Theophilus. And what Luke is doing over these two volumes is he's presenting a carefully researched account of the life of Jesus and Jesus' ministry. We call that the Gospel of Luke. And the book that we're in, Acts, is a carefully researched account of the first 30 years of the new movement of Jesus that began after his ascension into heaven. And it shows the movement of Jesus starting in Jerusalem and eventually spreading out from Jews to Gentiles into the kingdom, into uh, the Roman Empire. And so... Mike, over the last several weeks, has been using this analogy. Think of Luke and think of Acts as two seasons of the same television show. If you watch an epic show like 24, Lost, or anything along those lines, you need the season before it to understand what's going on and to receive the payoff. They're meant to be watched together. And so similarly, Luke and Acts are meant to be read together. They're meant to be digested together because they are building off one another. In fact, in Acts, Luke is making many assumptions that his readership is familiar with his previous volume. And so as we jump in, what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be finishing the account of what took place at Pentecost. See, last week, if you were with us, we caught up with the fact that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that Jesus promises apostles that said, don't go on mission until the Spirit comes, had shown up in a big way. 
If you remember, the apostles were praying in a room and there was that epic wind. There were the tongues of fire. There was the prophesying. There was the speaking new and foreign language that they didn't know. And so what we saw last week is that Peter, empowered by the Spirit, he stood up and began giving clarity as to what was happening. Because there were people that were wondering, are these guys drunk? What is going on right now? So Peter began to give clarity. No, no, no. This is what Jesus has been talking about. This is what our scriptures have been talking about. This is the fulfillment of the promise of God's plan all along. And so he began that. And so today we're going to finish that account that Peter is now going to continue teaching while he continues to be empowered by the Spirit. And what Peter is going to do, he's going to make sure that them and us are properly focused on what's taking place here. Meaning, he wants to be crystal clear that the cause of Pentecost, the reason this has all happened is because Jesus is Messiah. And so there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Peter's Testimony. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to be starting at verse 22. Now, a couple things as we, as we continue in Peter's sermon. You're going to see right at the beginning of verse 22, a recurring theme that Peter is using family language. He's going to say fellow Israelites. He's going to say brothers at one point. They're going to refer to him as a brother. Peter is preaching specifically to his Jewish family, to his Jewish brethren. And the core of Peter's sermon is he's explaining that this is happening because of Jesus. And so what he's doing during this part of his sermon is he is challenging his audience. He is challenging these Jewish men to change their perception of how they see Jesus. And so what Peter is going to do is he's going to make a case he is going to testify that Jesus is Messiah. And he's going to start off by recounting what we call the gospel, the ministry, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But he's going to show how that ties in to the Jewish Holy Scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit is revealing to Peter that the Scriptures that they have grown up studying were talking about Jesus all along. He's using the Scriptures as confirmation that Jesus is Messiah. So let's dig in. Starting at verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Remember, this was still very fresh in their heads. This is maybe a month and a half, two months-ish since Jesus died. So Jesus' ministry, Jesus' preaching, Jesus' miracles, there's a lot of people there that probably witnessed that. It's very fresh in their heads, and so he doesn't need to go into too much detail. Let's keep reading. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. If you've got a pen or an app capable of highlighting, if you go back to verse 23, I'd love for you to underline or highlight the phrase deliberate plan. See, Peter, as he tells the story of Jesus, 
he's making a very key point that the fact that Jesus died was not God's plan B or plan C. The fact that Jesus went to the cross was not a curveball that God had to flex with and go, okay, I need to make something good out of this now. What he's saying is, we have responsibility in why Jesus died. But Jesus went to the cross because God had a bigger plan since the beginning of time. Since people sinned, God had a plan of salvation that was to be fulfilled in Jesus. And so what he's going to do now is he's going to go into his first of two Old Testament quotations. He's going to quote out of the psalm. Specifically, he's quoting out of Psalm 16, a psalm of David. Now, this is a big deal to a Jewish culture because David is one of their patriarchs. And so there was a lot of reverence for the words of David, especially in Scripture. And what the Holy Spirit in Paul, excuse me, in Peter is revealing to Peter is that the Holy Spirit opened David's eyes as he wrote this and David prophesied about the Messiah. And what David said is confirmation that Jesus is Messiah. So let's read what he says. As he quotes the psalm, David said about him in verse 25, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy in your presence. Now, if you think about that, there was a lot of people that believed David was talking about himself in some way because it was known that the Messiah would come from the line of David. But if you look at those specific words, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, meaning you will not leave me dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. What happens when you die? What Paul is going to do next is he's going to address this belief that people think this is about David, and he's going to go, this isn't about David, and this is his actual point. You know why it's not about David? Because David's dead, and we all know it. And so he goes on to write, fellow Israelites, again, the family language, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David was died and buried and his tomb is, the, is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. And so what I love about what Paul is doing, and I'm going to paraphrase in my language, guys, the dude is dead. And you know how we know it? Because 40 miles south in a little city that we all pass going to Jerusalem, his tomb is a big tourist attraction. You've seen his doom. He's dead. He is in the realm of the dead. His body has decayed. That is not who we're talking about in this psalm. The only person who has risen from the grave is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the only person that death could not hold. He's the only person that is not seeing decay. David, through the Spirit, wrote about Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 31. Seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. This goes back to Acts 1.8, when Jesus told the apostles, and you will be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. In that specific context, they are the witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. They saw him. They interacted with him. 
they can testify firsthand, Jesus is alive. And so now Peter's doing the first of many of these testimonies. Jesus is alive, and I saw him. And he goes on to remind them the importance of the ascension. Verse 32, God had raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. If you were here when Mike taught on the ascension, you remember that we talked about we often don't focus on the ascension, but it's a very key part of Jesus being Messiah. Being ascended into the right hand of God meant that he was put in a position of power. Jesus was given full heavenly rule. He was now as high as you could go. And what's very key, another word to underline, another word to highlight, if you look back at verse 33, is the word poured. Jesus poured out the spirits onto his followers. The only person that has the authority to pour out the spirits is the Messiah. Mike touched on this last week that sometimes when we read Pentecost, it can be very confusing because sometimes we focus on the wrong thing or we focus on the wrong questions. Sometimes with the account of Pentecost, the focus tends to be solely on the spectacular, the gifts, what the Holy Spirit did. What's really unique about what Peter is saying in this moment is he's not even referencing the Spirit. He's going, do you understand the focus of Pentecost is that Jesus is Messiah. This is only happening because Messiah is risen and is pouring out his Spirit on all of us. He wants us to be very crystal clear on that fact because what he's going to do next to close his sermon is what I call his drop the mic moment. If you're unfamiliar with that term, it basically means ending a conversation with an exclamation point where you go, boom, I'm right, and you can't argue with this. And it's a big deal. And this is what he says. Oh, excuse me, I skipped a whole psalm. (laughs) I think I pulled a mic there. So in verse 34, (laughs) he goes back into the issue of prophecy. He says, for David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so again, he's using one of these psalms, and David is prophesying as he writes this psalm, a conversation between God the Father, Lord, the name above all names. Now keep in mind, that word Lord is very key, and we're going to come back to that later. He's prophesying the Lord God is speaking to the Messiah, to his son, and he's telling his Messiah, one day you are going to ascend and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Again, Peter is going, we saw this happen. We saw Jesus ascend. Jesus is Messiah. And now he gets to the drop the mic moment in verse 36. If you have the ability to underline or highlight, underline this verse. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Boom. And especially as a Jewish man speaking to a Jewish audience to declare someone Messiah is a huge deal. But what Peter is saying is the evidence is all there. He's not saying, I want you to take this on blind faith. 
He's not saying, I want you to take it just because I'm, I walked with him and I'm telling you to. He's saying that all of our scriptures, the Holy Spirit being here, our testimony, everything is pointing to the fact that Jesus is Messiah. He rose he ascended. He was Messiah before all of that. But those two acts are the loudest bells anybody could ring to point to the fact that he is Messiah. And so look at how the Jewish brethren responded. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, which in the original language translates to they were in agony and they were in pain because they realized he's right they realized this was, this is Messiah. And so they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? See, there's wondering if there's any hope you can have. See, Mike touched on this last week. To a Jewish person waiting for Messiah, there is no bigger sin than having ignored and having killed Messiah. It's very likely that there are people who Peter is addressing that just a few months earlier were in the crowd screaming, crucify him, crucify him. They went from, like many of us, a point of disbelief complete. That's not Jesus. Jesus is a sham. This isn't real. To now hearing the testimony from Peter, to now be seeing through new lenses because of the Spirit, they're going, oh my goodness, Jesus is Messiah, what do we do? Is there anything we can do? And from a human perspective, a lot of us probably be like, no, you had your chance. You killed him. You denied him. You walked away. There's nothing. You don't deserve this, which is true. But again, God always has a different perspective. And look at how Peter responds in verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. See, when we think of the word repentance, we think of forgiveness of our sins, and that's a core part of it. But to truly come to repentance means I want Jesus to forgive me of my sins, and I'm going to undergo a radical reorientation of how I see Jesus. Repentance is a beautiful act because what you are doing in repentance is you are acknowledging in joy that Jesus is Messiah. Messiah has risen. Messiah has forgiven me, and I want to live in his life. And he says to be baptized. Not because baptism is a requirement to be saved, but baptism was a familiar custom to them. They understood that baptism had meanings to purify yourself for the forgiveness of sins. But now for the first time, baptism has a new component added to it. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. Be baptized in the name of Messiah as a symbol of this truth. Jesus is Messiah. And I want to proclaim that. And you know what's amazing about it? Is that they had hope. None of us are ever so far gone that Messiah cannot give us hope. Because here are the people 
that in a sense crucified him. You notice in Peter's language, he doesn't let them off the hook. But you know what's amazing for us today is that that language is for us too. See, a mistake that can happen is we can sit there and look at that Jewish nation and go, well, they're the people that killed Jesus. It's their fault. The reality is Jesus died because of whose sin? Mine. Yours. I'm as guilty as anybody else. I'm as guilty as the people that nailed him to the cross. And so this message is for me as well. Is there hope? Yes. Repent and be baptized because Jesus is Messiah. And as he goes on, man, this message is not just for us. This message is for Jews and Gentiles, for Jerusalem, for Rome, and to the very ends of the earth. And then as we close out our section, verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation, meaning any, any society, any people, anything that would tell you that Jesus is not Messiah. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. See, where it says in verse 40, many other words, remember Luke is giving us a summary of that sermon. If you will, Luke is giving us the greatest hits playlist of what took place. It's likely that Peter was speaking a lot throughout the day through different courses of people, but 3,000 people, 3,000 Jewish people saw that their Messiah has come and their Messiah is living in this as we continue our study in Acts is just a taste of what's to come. And so that's the end of our passage. And so with the time I have left, what I want to do is I want to do a couple of things. The first I want to do is I want to summarize the two main points that were the foundation of Peter's sermon in this section. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Identifying the Messiah. And your first villain is this. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard that before. You've heard that term associated to Jesus, and there's many of you that probably be like, yeah, duh, we get it. <laughs> but we need to take a step back here, because as we saw in Peter's words, as we will continue to see in the New Testament as they proclaim that Jesus is Messiah, when they said that statement, that was a statement that produced awe and wonder. That was a statement that stopped people in their tracks. Wait, Jesus is Messiah? And I think what's happened, and I'm guilty of this as well in the modern church, is we have taken that phrase for granted. It's kind of lost its meaning, like a joke that you've heard over and over again that just stops being funny. You kind of sit there and go, yeah, Jesus is Messiah, and we move on, and there's no sense of awe. And the way I know that we do that is looking how we treat the word Christ, See, Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. But often in our society, both in church and outside of church walls, we treat the word Christ like it's no big deal. It's his last name. It doesn't really have that much significance. He's Jesus Christ. All right, I get it. Or Christ is our curse word of choice. We tend to use it when things go wrong or you hit your hand with a hammer, or something goes there, and we use it like that in a derogatory sense. See, in the church, how, when was the last time you just simply heard Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah and felt a sense of awe rather than, yes, I get it? 
And so what we need to do is we need to reclaim this view of Jesus being Messiah. And to do that, we need to see it in context. To see scripture in context means to not see it from our point of view, but to see it from the point of view of the intended audience and to make an emotional connection with them. Why was the word Messiah such a big deal to them? Because to the Jewish nation, they knew. All of them knew that the word Messiah meant that this is God's anointed one. That Messiah would come to right the wrongs that were created due to sin. The Messiah would heal and restore his people. And the Messiah would establish God's kingdom in this life and the next. See, in the Jewish culture, one thing that's amazing is that they didn't throw out the word Messiah like it was a common word. They had a deep reverence for that title. There were laws in their society. If you remember when Jesus acknowledged he was the Messiah on trial, everybody flipped out. You didn't just say you're Messiah. You didn't just use the words. You had a deep respect and reverence. And so for them to go, Jesus is Messiah, carries such a deep emotional connotation. I like how uh, Apostle Paul puts it to your note sheets as he talks about how somebody comes to the Lord. He says in Romans, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Do you remember I mentioned as we were in our passage to hang on to the word Lord? See, to the Jewish nation, the name above all names, the name of God was the name Yahweh. There was no higher name than that. And often, They felt it was too sacred to be pronounced or to be written out. And so in certain translations of the the Holy Scriptures, particularly in the Greek translations or in oral synagogue readings, what they would do is they they would insert in the word Lord instead of the word Yahweh out of respect. But if you go into your Old Testament today and you look at the word Lord and it's all capitalized, it says Yahweh. And so again, for them to say a phrase that we have often taken for granted that Jesus is Lord, what they are saying is Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is now the name above all names, and it leads to a place of awe. That's who he is. He's here, he's living, and he's risen. And so the first hope of Peter is that we today would be a people that see a much deeper meaning behind the phrase, Jesus is the Messiah. Now here's the second thing that was the foundation of Peter's sermon. It's your second fill-in. Messiah is defined by God. I'd love for you to add two words to that sentence. Messiah is defined by God, not us. We got to ask a question. Why did so many people then, from the apostles themselves to the religious leaders, let's fast forward to now. Why do so many people now fail to see that Jesus is the Messiah? Because it seems like all the evidence is there, but yet many of us, many of them, miss that fact. And I think it comes to this point. We often define Messiah by our terms, not by God's terms. 
We often dictate what Messiah is going to do, how Messiah should be, and therefore, if we don't see the Messiah we want, we don't accept it as Messiah. When you were back in grade school, did you ever play a game called the telephone game? Do you remember how a telephone game worked? You lined up a group of people, and there was a starting person, and they would say something simple, like blueberry pie. And the point of the game was you had to whisper it to the next person, and you had to try to make the phrase get, like, succeed and get to the last person. And they would tell you, and it never worked, right? The telephone game is designed to make you feel stupid about yourself. Because it starts with, tel- it starts with blueberry pie, and then it ends up with like platypus booger. And you kind of sit there, and everybody laughs, and you kind of sit there. But the thing is, the telephone game happens sometimes when it comes to our view of Jesus, For various different reasons. By the time Jesus arrived on the scene, the religious establishment had added so many barriers to the actual heart of Scripture that they had telephone gamed the message out. Jesus often would teach the actual Scriptures to reorient the people and go, no, 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 this is what God's Word actually says, not the man-made words. Because to Peter... And to anybody growing up in that time, they were expecting a Messiah, but not a Messiah like Jesus. See, the religious leaders had interpreted it through their desires, through what they wanted to see happen in the immediate and the now and their hopes and dreams. So everybody was waiting for a a conquering general. Messiah is going to come in on his white horse. He's going to free Israel from bondage. He's going to march right into Rome. He's going to topple that kingdom, and he's going to establish a new earthly kingdom where he reigns and we reign with him. Nobody expected Messiah to come and die. Nobody. In fact, if you think of Peter's life himself, What was one point of argument he often contended with Jesus about? Was Jesus saying that he had to die? No, messiahs don't die. That's not what you're here to do. Go blow up Rome. Let's take over. See, on your note sheet, I like how theologian Gordon Fee puts it. To the Jews, Christ crucified is a contradiction in terms of the same category as fried ice. It's important to remember who defines what Messiah does, God. But this is, very, this is a very relevant point for us for a very honest and a true reason. See, today, you and I, we often, because of our sin, try to define what Messiah is rather than let God define that as well. We often create a Messiah or a Jesus in our own image, We often approach Messiah with an attitude of, this is what I would do, not this, but this is what I expect Jesus to do. This is how I would do it. This is what feels right to me. We dictate it. I can illustrate it with this. If you've known me for longer than five minutes, you know I love movies. And one of the things about movies is my wife is amazingly patient because we'll go see a movie. I'm very quiet as we walk out. We go in the car, and then she knows to go, All right, what did you think? (laughs) And I immediately proceed to tell her everything I would do better. (laughs) Oh, no, like, we needed to rewrite the characters to be like this, or if we had done this, or if we shot it from this angle, if we go from here, if we go from here, it would have been a hit, it would have been huge, it would have been great. Now, there's a couple problems with that. I love movies. I have never made a movie. (laughs) 
somehow in all of these car ride home criticism conversation, a studio has not called me and go, you are the savior of our movie. Tell us how you doing. Ultimately, what's the problem in that? It's arrogance. Because what am I saying? This is what should be done. Banner statement. What am I really saying? This is my preference. This is what I want. And what I want should be what everybody wants. That's kind of the truth of how we approach a lot of life, isn't it? What I want is what everybody should want. My style, my preferences, my hopes, my dreams, my desires. And the truth is we do that to Messiah. The Jesus I want that's going to give me success in my life is the one I picture and the one I'm hoping for. And so we turn into a Messiah into something we have defined. And he begins to look a certain key ways. We turn Messiah into being our political party. And we can't even fathom the thought the Messiah would love everybody, anybody in an opposite political party. I remember in the last election cycle, something that just broke my heart was on Facebook, seeing Christ followers post this like, quote, funny little poem or limerick that basically said, and I wish the president was dead. And I'm like, awesome. I'm not against disagreeing, I'm not against having different viewpoints, but as Christ followers, to wish somebody to be dead is not the best representation we can do, but how do we justify it? Because that's what my Messiah does. We turn Messiah into being our race. We turn Messiah into coming out of our suburban experience or our urban experience. We turn Messiah into coming from our nation. Well, Jesus is clearly American. And this is... And, and we can laugh at that, but we do that, don't we? And then we bring that into the church. We define Messiah by our terms. No, that's, that's not the worship style or music that Jesus would do. That's, that's not what he likes. No, like the pastor wears sandals? No, that's not what... <laughs> Messiah would do. Hey, that's not how you're supposed to teach. You only teach this way, or you only teach through these books this way, or you only do this, or you only do that. Do you see our secondary issues, the things that aren't affecting our salvation? No, 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 no. Jesus made it very clear. This is how old the earth is. No, 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 no. Don't even try to bring in the fact that he may have used, how dare you try to bring theistic evolution into this? Because clearly, my Messiah says the earth is this old, or this is, we were predestined, or we have free will, whatever it may be, we associate that to our Messiah. You know what happens ultimately? We make Messiah to be a glorified version of ourselves. Because what happens subtly is that Messiah begins to agree with everything we say. <laughs> All of a sudden, Messiah's like, Dre, you're a genius. I'm like, yeah, I know, thanks. One of, my favorite, one of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, once said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. What Peter is reminding us today is that we need to have a bigger view of Messiah. Because when we dictate who Messiah is and what Messiah does, we shrink him. But when God dictates it, it's very, very big. Let me illustrate this in a practical sense. About a year and a half ago, I was in Israel with Mike and a team from Rocky Peak. 
And um, I forget specifically where we were, but our amazing uh, Israeli tour guide, we were just kind of shooting the breeze. There was a group of us. And he's like, hey, let me ask you something. In the Western world, in the United States, when you think of Jesus being a carpenter, how do you picture that? And so we started answering what we know carpenters to do. He works with wood. He builds tables, chairs, stairs, doors. I don't know what carpenters really do, but he does. That's what he does. He's like, okay, that's cool. Let me ask you something, okay? You've been in Israel for a couple days now. Have you seen a lot of big trees? There's a lot of little trees. Not all of you. He's like, have you seen a lot? I'm like, well, no, not a lot. Okay, let me ask you another question. We've been to many cities and many recreations of what the, the, of what the buildings were like. Have you seen a lot of buildings made of wood? N- no, I haven't. So I'm kind of eager. I'm like, Where, what are you getting at? He's like, to you, when you hear certain, the term that Jesus is a carpenter, you define it based on your experience. To us, when we hear that word, woodworking is a part of it, but also knowing our culture and our society, we also attribute that Jesus was a stonemason. Jesus was essentially a contractor. Jesus was a handyman. And as he's telling me this, it's expanding my view of Jesus. Whoa. That's not how I would have pictured it. That's not how I would have done it, and that's the point. See, the point of what Peter is saying through this is that we are not properly equipped for mission until we have a proper view of Jesus. And so that act of repentance, a radical reorientation, we all need that in our lives as well to be able to see Jesus the way he was meant to be seen. Because when it comes to making Jesus out to be an idealized version of me, here's what I'm truly saying in that moment. I am smarter than Messiah. Here's what I've learned after years of failing at that point. I am not smarter than Messiah. I am not smarter than God. I need that stamped on my forehead to remember that regularly because the Messiah I want is too small for what I really need in my life. The nation of Israel wanted a conquering general. Let's say they had gotten what they wanted. Jesus never died for their sins. Their biggest problem would not have been taken care of. See, God gave them something they did not expect or even would say they didn't want but it was for their betterment. I like how an Irish theologian, David Gooding, puts it in your note sheet. They had murdered God's son, and now he was offering them his spirit. They had crucified the second person of the Trinity. He was offering them the third. They had thrown God's son out of the vineyard in the hope of inheriting the vineyard themselves. Now he was inviting them to receive God's spirit into their very hearts, to be their undying life, and to be the earnest and guarantee of an, in, of an infinite and imperishable inheritance. If we had defined what Messiah did, that's not what would have happened. But God defines it. And so Peter's reminding us, be a people, be Christ followers that are continuing allowing God to define Messiah. And so on that note, let's transition a little bit. If we want to see Messiah as God intended, how do we do that? And there's various steps. What I want to do is I want to highlight two that I feel are primary. And so there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Seeing the Real Jesus Two Ways. And your first fill-in is this, the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus as God intended through the Holy Spirit. 
at its most foundational sense, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit lives in us. The Spirit empowers us. The Spirit gives us what we need to be on mission. But the reality is all of that is accomplished in what the primary role of the Holy Spirit is, to continually show us that Jesus is Messiah to continually show us who Jesus is and the bigger picture of what he's come to do and the role he plays in our lives. We are empowered through a proper view of Messiah. See, and as Peter experienced this, not just at Pentecost, but Peter experienced this when he walked with Jesus as well. Kind of picture a scene. It's unique to me and very intentional that Jesus picked the city of Caesarea Philippi to ask this core question. They're walking through this city. And again, it's a city that I got to be in when I was on that Israel trip. And the city is just full of idolatry. False God after false God after false God. And there was even this giant opening, this cave with a pit that they weren't sure how far it went. But they called it basically the gates to hell. Because they just assumed, well, something bad's going to come out of there. We've got all these other false gods. And it's here in which Jesus turns to his followers and says, who do you say I am? Now, understand something true about that question. They didn't kind of raise their hand like in a Sunday school sense going, oh, I know. You're Jesus. You're the Messiah. See, up to that point, they knew there was something very special about Jesus. They had devoted their lives to Jesus, but the truth of the matter is they were probably hoping that Jesus turned out to be who he said he was. And it was the Holy Spirit that opened Peter's eyes. I like to think of the Holy Spirit as like spiritual lenses and let him see something very clear. And it's there in your note sheet. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. It's kind of this moment where the switch goes on. He goes, man, I really hope you're the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to go, whoa, you are Messiah. It's true. And that was a turning point for them. And the Holy Spirit shows us the real Jesus through various ways, but I think there is one primary way through which he tends to work most often, and that's just my opinion, but I put it there in your note sheet. The second fill-in is this, Scripture. The Holy Spirit reveals the real Jesus through Scripture. Why did Peter go back to the Scriptures? Last week when he was talking about the Holy Spirit, he went back to the prophet Joel. This week he goes back to the Psalms, Jesus often went back to the scriptures when he taught. We will see the apostles continue to go. In fact, early apostolic teaching was found, the foundation of it was Jesus is Messiah, and we're going to show you this through scripture. Why did, G, why did Peter go back to scripture? Because he was showing the importance of scripture in revealing that Jesus is Messiah. There was a reverence and a weight that they were adding to it. See, scripture is not this collection of a bunch of random stories that got pieced together. Scripture in its entirety is the story of the Messiah. The promise that Messiah will come. Messiah, when he arrives in his ministry the death and resurrection and ascension of Messiah, the now beginning of Messiah's movement, and the promise the Messiah will come again. 
Cover to cover, Scripture is the story of Messiah. And when we read Scripture, we see the promise of Jesus to come. And in the New Testament in particular, we see them continually refer to the Jesus as Messiah. Jesus is Lord. Jesus reigns supreme as the name above all names. One example of that is on your note sheet, how the Apostle Paul referred to him, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he, may, he might have supremacy. In Scripture, there is no description of a small Jesus. It is always a description of a messianic Jesus. Now, Scripture is a core, core way to see the real Jesus. Now, that being said, we need to address an honest and a very real problem in the modern church. In the modern church, as Christ followers, we have severely devalued the role of Scripture in our lives. We have severely devalued the role of Scripture in our lives. We've turned scripture into the Brussels sprouts on the dinner plates. <laughs> if you get a complete dinner with all the food groups, if you put the Brussels sprouts on there, and if you like Brussels sprouts, that's more power to you, you weirdos. But <laughs> if you put the Brussels sprouts on the plate, you do it out of obligation. We're supposed to put a vegetable like this on here, right? And you're excited about everything else, but you don't touch that, right? And if you think about the analogy in the church, that's often how we treat scripture. We're excited about everything else. I love going to church. I love singing worship. I love my life group. I love praying. I love this. I love that. And yet we don't have that enthusiasm. We don't have that excitement. Dare I say, we don't have that love or passion about the word. Yeah, the word. That's, that's there. What do we say as Christians? I, I should be in it. I know I should be in it. And here's the danger in that. We have created a culture within the capital C, the global church, that we have bought into a lie that we can be thriving Christ followers apart from the word of God. And the big danger in that is we become people that don't value his word and we become completely okay with that. Because picture yourself in your life group. When you're going around talking about prayers, you're like, you know, I, I should be in Scripture, so pray for me that I get in Scripture. The reality, and I'm only speaking from times in my own life, what's really going on the inside is you're really saying, I'm not going to do it because I don't care. I'll do all the other stuff. I'll do the fun stuff. I'll do the great stuff. I'll do the stuff that's not boring to me. But the word is just something I'm never going to get into. And so if you please, if you don't walk away with anything else this morning, don't remember anything else I said, please remember this. We cannot have an accurate view of Jesus apart from Scripture. We cannot have an accurate view of, of Jesus apart from Scripture. It is the reason why we are given Scripture. It is the only written word that is living and active and has the power to change lives because it is screaming cover to cover, Jesus is Messiah. Who does not want you in Scripture? The devil, because Scripture tells you the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of how powerless he is. So therefore, if you are not in Scripture, he is winning because we are not seeing Messiah. But when we are in Scripture, 
When we are in scripture, we see that Jesus is supreme. We see that Jesus is king, that Jesus is risen, that Jesus changes our lives. And so we need to ask a sub-question to that. So why do we dislike it so much? If this is one of the most foundational parts of us seeing Jesus as Messiah, why do we as a culture dislike it so much? And if you ask people that, you tend to get the same things over and over again. Well, it's boring, to which, listen to Mike going off last week about boring. <laughs> or, like, I don't have time is a common one, or I, I may not know where to start. And those are the common answers, but honestly, I'm not convinced that's the reason why. And so to really think about this as I was preparing this week, I had to really just pray and really humble myself and ask, what is it that keeps me from Scripture? Because I've said all of those things, but I feel like there's something deeper and foundational. And so what the Lord led me to, and it wasn't a fun revelation, but it was a true one, and this is true of me, and maybe you can relate to this, one of the things that keeps me from Scripture, it goes back to I define Messiah rather than God defines Messiah. Scripture challenges how I've defined Jesus to be. If my view of Jesus is challenged and my view of Jesus is wrong, then the implication is there's changes in my life that have to happen. And the honest response is I don't like change. Because often when we create Messiah in our own image, we create a safe Messiah. We create a Messiah that's comfortable, that doesn't rock the boat, that gives us this whole idyllic Andy Griffith type of life. That's Messiah. But the truth is, that's not scripture of Messiah. Mike said this last week when he quoted from the Chronicles of Narnia, when they described Aslan, is he safe? No, but he's good. Our God is not safe. Our God is not comfortable, but he is good. And when he challenges your view of him through the word, it is because he wants you to experience something better. Some of us don't go to scripture because we know we don't have our priorities in the right place. And we know that if we were to read something like Colossians 3, where we're being charged, set your mind, set your heart on things above, on heavenly things, that that would cause us to change and we have to make a decision. Some of us, we don't go to scripture because we have a very safe view of Jesus. We kind of picture Jesus as a gentleman sitting on a park bench feeding the pigeons. And then you read something like John 2 where Jesus was so upset that he made a whip and a weapon. And people are like, well, I don't, I don't like that Jesus, but it challenges how we view Jesus. Some of us, frankly, we don't go to Scripture because it would change a racial outlook we have, a people group or a stereotype that we define other people in. And yet in Scripture, Jesus asked a non-Jew to write one of the accounts of his life. Some of us, we don't go to Scripture because we don't want to accept that we've been called to be on mission like everybody else. Yeah, I want people to be saved and I want somebody else to do it. But if I go to Acts 1-8 where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, that means something's got to change. Some of us, we don't go to scripture because we like our sin too much. And we know it. Jesus, you have 80% of my life. But you know what? This substance, or you know what? This worry, or you know what? This need to always be in control this need to completely control the life of my kids or my job or everything, my narcissism, whatever it may be, Jesus, that, that's mine. 
And we would read something like Ephesians 2 that reminds us that sin is what brought God's wrath to begin with. And he wants something new. Some of us, we don't go to scripture because we feel like we're too messed up. We're too bad. We're too flawed to be before Jesus. And yet here we are in Acts chapter 2 where he told the people probably that crucified him, repent because there is hope for you. See, Scripture challenges our view of Jesus, and at a fundamental level, that's the reason why so many of us stay away from it. But remember that the reason why God wants us to see a clear view of who he is is because he wants us to experience more of the life we were created to be. Is it safe? (laughs) No. But it's good. It's very good. Many of the issues our world has in the church and out when it comes to the image of Jesus, many of the issues people have when it comes to how they view Jesus and why they don't agree with Jesus or believe in Jesus come from inaccurate pictures of Jesus. If we are to be a people who are on mission, if we are to be good representatives and church hear me, we need to develop a biblical literacy. I'm not asking you to become scholars. I'm asking you to have a reverence and to see Jesus in the word. And man, there's a lot of different ways to engage in the word. There's not one right way because we're all different. Some of you maybe through reading, you're gonna read a lot at one time. Some of you maybe you're gonna read a lot throughout a day or a week. Some of you maybe you're just gonna focus on a verse or two for a short amount of time. Some of you maybe you're gonna use a tool like a devotional or one of those read through the Bible in like a year or five years type tool. Some of you, maybe the best way to engage with scripture is to listen to it. A lot of your apps speak and they're free and you can download them. Some of you, maybe it's doing the life group study that gets you in scripture every week. Some of you, maybe it's doing it with a group of people or some family members. See, the mechanics of it can look different. We have that freedom, but here's the core that we all need to have. Engage with scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to change your view of scripture, which will therefore allow you, will therefore change your view of Messiah. So I hate to admit this, but I'm going to be honest with you guys here. If you've heard me teach before, one of the topics I tend to go back to is, my, is, is the fact that I love food, and specifically I love pizza, donuts, and burgers. <laughs> it's how God made me. <laughs> and so 10 years ago, I had just gotten married, and my wife had this absurd notion that I'd like you to live long enough to grow old with me. And I'm like, well, how, how do you propose we accomplish that? She's like, well, let's start going to the gym. And so we became members, we still are, of the YMCA. We go to Porter Ranch. And she was all happy. I went kicking and screaming like a child. So I got there. I'd never been in a gym in my life. Everything in there is very heavy. So I walked in and I go into the room. (laughs) And I went to the cross trainer. You know why I went to the cross trainer? Because it has a TV. So I'm like sitting there moving slowly watching the Food Network. It was great. But an amazing thing happened. When we left, she's like, What'd you think? Kind of expecting me to be like, this is the worst experience, you're on your own. I'm like, you know what? I didn't hate it as much as I thought I would. I wasn't in love with it yet, but I didn't hate it as much as I thought I would. So I went back with her. And every time I kept going back with her, I'm like, wow, this is getting kind of better. And before I knew it, I'm going by myself. I'm waking up in the morning going, yeah, I want to do this. I was actually excited about going to the gym. 
See, the truth of the matter, what I'm using that to illustrate is for so many of us, we have this misconception of Scripture, but if we give it a proper chance, if we allow the Holy Spirit to lead it, if we just engage with it, very quickly our perceptions are going to change. And so on that note, as you turn to the back of your notes, I just have one last question for you. What are you going to do about the Messiah? What will you do about the Messiah? See, I put again Acts 2.37 in there when the, when the crowd asked, brothers, what shall we do? And so the question to us today is Jesus is Messiah. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to be reminded of that? What are you going to do to live in that truth? What are you going to do to see that more and more? What are you going to do to embrace that for the first time if that's your situation? But what are you going to do about Messiah? And so I'd love you to reflect on that as we go into this time of worship. This is your time to reflect on the fact that Messiah is living, Messiah is risen, Messiah is king, and Messiah is good. And so as we go into this time, let me encourage you, feel free to stand and engage Feel free to sit and meditate. Feel free to read the words of Scripture, whatever the Lord is leading you, but engage with the fact that Messiah is here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being Messiah. Thank you for being our Lord. Thank you for giving us hope even when we didn't see it. And I pray that we be a people who are not satisfied with a small view of you, but are passionate, are eager to continually see Messiah grow in our hearts and in our minds. I pray that we be a people that reclaim the view of Scripture, that we use Scripture as the sword, Ephesians calls it to be, as the light in a society that is confused about who Jesus is. We confess if we've, decided, if we've tried to define Messiah in our own terms, Jesus. We give that up and give that back to you. Father, thank you that we live in the truth, that you are risen and you are king. And I pray as we sing this last song, I pray as we receive these gifts and offerings, thank you for those commitments that allow us to be able to resource ministry. In your son's name, amen. Feel free to stand up. You know, as we leave here, as we go about our days, as we go about our weeks, wherever you go, whatever you do, my prayer is that we live in the truth that Jesus is Messiah. The Messiah is with you. The Messiah is for you. And Messiah has saved you in this life and the next. Amen? Hey, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, over to my right along that wall is some amazing men and women, part of our prayer ministry that would love to be praying with you. Next week, you got to come back and join me again. You can't leave me hanging because it's getting, we're going to continue to jump into, we're going to jump into a new section in Acts. Up until this point, we've been seeing some very specific events. Now what we're going to see is we're going to see a big passage of time but now that we have this new movement of Jesus, we're gonna see a picture of what was life like for them? What was the beginning of what we now call the church? How did they live? What were they devoted to? And what can we learn from that as Christ followers today? It's gonna to be awesome, so I hope to see you then.